It's Monday, August 17th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Democratic National Convention gets started today in a way that we have not seen yet, completely virtual. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, various speeches will be given throughout the four-day event, but none will be in front of an audience. Democrats hope that the virtual convention will still be able to energize voters to turn out in the fall. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for the Dem Convention, a new doctor on the coronavirus task force, and the ongoing Postal Service crisis. Next, coronavirus fatigue has hit the country. The pandemic has upended society on a scale and duration that has not been seen before. And the worst part about it is that there's no end in sight. Parents are worried about how to balance work and school for their kids, and unemployed workers struggle to keep up. Brady Dennis, national reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for more on COVID fatigue. Finally, the agricultural economy has not been doing well, and more U.S. farmers are declaring bankruptcy. The pandemic has compounded a series of problems for farmers such as drops in prices, trade disputes, and tariffs from China and Mexico. Jesse Newman, agricultural reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how farmers are still going bankrupt despite record levels of federal aid. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Joe Biden had the audacity to choose a black woman to be his running mate. How incredible is that? And what a statement about Joe Biden. And that he made that decision with whatever risk that brings. As much as anything, it's a statement about the character of the man that we're going to elect as the next president of the United States. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. The Democratic National Convention starts on Monday. This week is going to be full of speeches, although it's going to be different from the way these conventions have been done in the past. It's going to be all virtual because of the coronavirus pandemic that's been going on. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be giving their speeches from the Chase Center in Wilmington, Delaware. But Ginger, tell us how this week is going to play out for the Democrats. Yes, it's very different for those of us that cover these. In a normal times, I would be speaking to you probably already from Milwaukee. And instead, um, I'm at home in Northern Virginia. So <laughs> quite different. But for viewers at home, it might not be that different. We understand that the Democratic Party and Vice President's campaign have put a lot of thought into trying to make this an exciting or entertaining experience for viewers at home who would have otherwise just been watching it on TV, whether or not there was a pandemic. They're going to have a host every night, sort of a master's of ceremonies, moving things along. And unlike past conventions where speeches could last last five, 10 minutes. They're really trying to keep things zippy. Uh, we understand that instead of a 15-minute, 20-minute keynote address, we're going to hear from 17 different wow. uh, Democrats one night uh, in one-minute speeches. So uh, quite different, but they're trying to make it lively for the viewers at home. Yeah, my understanding is that a lot of the speeches are going to be pre-recorded also to kind of help along with that. So yeah, it'll be interesting how they how they pull this one off. Nobody's going to be giving a speech in front of uh, any type of audience. So right right off the bat, kind of that enthusiasm level is not going to be there. Uh, you know, they're going to have to create the enthusiasm on the other side with the voters. Uh, so that's going to be a really tough thing. But naming Kamala Harris to the VP ticket uh, on this ticket has already created a ton of enthusiasm. The fundraising 
went crazy in the first 48 hours. I think they got 48 million in 48 hours. It's, uh, you know, creating this enthusiasm with younger voters and people of color. So already naming her to the ticket has has helped out a lot. That's right. And in regular years, we would expect a candidate to get a bit of a boost off of naming their vice presidential nominee. And we would expect a candidate to get a boost coming out of their convention. They're what we call uh, bounces or bumps that happen um, after these big events when lots of people pay attention to what's going on as people start to make up their minds. We're seeing that. But Joe Biden goes into his convention really as well placed as he could hope, several points ahead of Donald Trump, leading in a number of important in swing states. Um, so he, he's seeing that enthusiasm get bigger and grow. Uh, I guess the question will be what will happen when President Trump then has the attention turned to him? Can he capitalize on any of it the week afterwards? I want to move on a little bit to the coronavirus response by the administration. There's a new guy on the coronavirus task force. His name is Dr. Scott Atlas. He's a uh, frequent guest on Fox News. He's the former chief of neuroradiology at Stanford. He has extensive experience in the medical field, but he does not have any any expertise in public health or infectious diseases. That's right. So we're seeing the president who's grown frustrated, at least privately, with the way that this has been handled publicly. A president who cares so much about what public messaging and public image looks like, trying to find someone who can stay on message with him, which he wasn't getting among the group of advisors he had. Um, So we're seeing this new doctor uh, playing a larger role in the public sort of facing part of this. Um, And you're right. He has a long history, really solid credentials, no history, though, in public health. But at this point, not really contradicting the public health guidance that we're seeing. So it's 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 to be seen what role he plays in the the sort of broader portion of the response, maybe beyond just someone who comes on camera and talks in in a way that the president likes. Yeah, he does align with the president. A lot of things. Uh, He was a critic of the lockdowns. Uh, He wants schools to reopen, college sports to come back. And he even said that the lockdowns uh, probably hurt us a little bit in getting herd immunity quicker. So we'll see, uh, you know, what kind of role he'll play as uh, the days develop. And lastly, just real quick, the U.S. Postal Service continues to go through a crisis right now. They just sent a letter to about 46 states that said they can't guarantee that all ballots cast by mail will arrive in time to be counted. I know uh, Nancy Pelosi wants to bring the House back early so they can vote on uh, whether to fund them a little bit more. So the Postal Office continues to, to go through this crisis right now. That's right. We're going to be hearing a lot more as more people push for mail-in ballots. There's questions about the capacity. And there's also questions that we saw um, as the Postal Service was trying to say, if you're a state that allows people to request ballots up until a day before the election, you're going to have trouble getting them mailed to the person and mailed back in time to have them counted before we know a result. Um, So I think we're going to hear questions about funding. We're going to hear questions about how the states should be structuring their rules to make this possible. And we're going to have a lot more discussion about what is realistic in these times, especially as the fall seems to present a bunch of more unknowns we don't know about. People going out in public, people being in in crowds and whether or not it's going to get better or worse. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Some of that could be seen as trivial, you know, just things that you miss doing, having um, backyard cookouts with friends. But 
Some of it is very weighty stuff, you know, parents lying awake, worrying about how they're going to juggle work at school and health workers, you know, who have worked just excruciating shifts for months on end. Joining us now is Brady Dennis, national reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Brady. Thanks for having me. This coronavirus pandemic has lasted longer than most people initially expected. When it first started, I know people thought, hey, maybe this could be a flash in the pan. Let's hunker down. We'll handle this right away. But we're going over six months now. It doesn't seem like it's going to end anytime soon. Really, the whole year seems to be lost to the pandemic with this. And there is severe coronavirus fatigue all over the place on a lot of different fronts, too. Everybody experiences the pandemic in a different way. Some you obviously get sick and and lose uh, parts of their lives that way. Other people are just kind of mourning some of the more simple things, birthdays being canceled, a lot of stuff. But the fatigue definitely is there. I'm feeling it. I know a lot of people that I know are feeling it. Brady, tell us about this. Tell us how this is all affecting us right now. What my colleagues and I wrote about today was just taking the temperature of the country and the mood of the country in this moment as we're kind of realizing that we're in this for the long haul, even if maybe we knew that in our minds earlier, it's like we're we're starting to feel it in a lot of different ways. And and as you mentioned, some of that could be seen as trivial, you know, just things that you miss doing, having um, uh, backyard cookouts with friends, but some of it is very weighty stuff, you know, parents lying awake, worrying about how they're going to juggle work at school and health workers, you know, who have worked just excruciating shifts for months on end, people who are have lost their jobs, people who are, um, you know, facing trouble making rent and mortgage payments, uh, you know, senior citizens who have been isolated for months. I mean, the list just goes on and on. So I think uh, we all have our own stories and we just um, uh, went out in search of some of those stories. And I want to be clear, even some of the, you know, the more trivial things that people might feel are bad, don't feel bad about those. I mean, this is a, such a huge disruption to your life everybody's lives that it's tough to adjust you know it's, it might not be a physical thing but it could be a mental health thing I, I have friends posting all the time just talking about how you know they just can't deal with the frustration of it even more and, and those are all very legitimate things I know there was a, a few polls recently done by Gallup one by the Kaiser Family Foundation talking about the mood of the country what did those look like uh, they look pretty dark to be honest I mean what you see I think more tellingly than any one number is kind of the shift over time. For instance, there was a Gallup poll that, uh, you know, they've they repeatedly asked the same questions over the year, uh, the course of the year. And uh, one showed that I think about 73% of adults viewed the pandemic as getting worse. And that was way up from, from April. And, you know, another poll asked about this question that's been asked of Americans for many years uh, almost on a monthly basis of how satisfied they are with the way things are going overall in the country. That's down to 13% of adults said that they were satisfied with the direction of the country. That's the lowest we've seen in the, about a decade. So, you know, in, in poll after poll, it just, you see the deepening despair, I guess is one way to describe it. And the kind of shrinking away of optimism, which, you know, can reverse itself just as, just as it went downhill. But we, we do seem to be in this moment where we're all just sort of, Hitting a new low in this uh, in this uh, year. We're all yeah, we're all over it by now. Uh, you mentioned you went out seeking some stories on how uh, Americans have been affected by this. Uh, any that stand out to you? 
a lot that stand out to me. And as we talked about earlier, you know, some are more dire situations than others, but, but some, you know, we all relate to in different ways. One, one that hit home to me since I'm have young kids and then juggling, you know, work and, and childcare and school at home was this, was this father who just said, you know, uh, it kind of just settled in that they're in this for the long haul. And, and he said, you know, we, we stayed at home. We thought that would be enough for months to, to kind of do our part to help the country get out of this. And, that hasn't been the case. And, you know, he said, um, you know, it's tough when you, when you have a light at the other end of the tunnel to look forward to, and then you realize the light is actually the train, you know, still coming at you. Yeah. The you open, know, the uh, open endedness I, of things is, is tough. The silver lining and you made a note of it in the article is that someday it will end. And the only close parallel we can really compare this to, we always bring back the 1918 flu pandemic there and, once we got over that, people got back to normal pretty quickly. And hopefully that's what we can do when this comes around. Brady Dennis, national reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. More farmers are struggling to stay in business just as a result of a, a culmination of factors. There have been trade conflicts in the past couple of years that have been really devastating for agriculture. That comes on top of problems the economy was having to begin with. Joining us now is Jesse Newman, agricultural reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Jesse. Thanks for having me. The agricultural economy has been in a slump for a few years now. There's been a lot of stuff going on. There was uh, trade disputes. There was tariffs coming from China and Mexico. We heard about all that. And what's happening right now is that despite record levels of federal aid to farmers, we're still seeing a, a lot of people declare bankruptcy. Jesse, tell us a little bit about that. That's right. Coronavirus, the pandemic has not been good to farmers, to the agricultural sector. So what we're seeing is more U.S. farmers declaring bankruptcy. They are filing for bankruptcy protection. That is as of federal data that came out just recently for numbers through the end of June. So that's those are year over year figures through the period ended June 30th. And what we're seeing is that more farmers are struggling to stay in business just as a result of a, a culmination of factors. As you pointed out, um, there have been trade conflicts in the past couple of years that have been really devastating for agriculture. That comes on top of problems the economy was having to begin with as farmers were dealing with a glut of commodities. And so then you had the pandemic. And the pandemic has really just across the board provided a very, very difficult situation for for farmers. And what we're seeing is that this year, the government is projected to uh, offer farmers a record $33 billion in direct payments. And yet, much of that has yet to be distributed. And it may not, in the end, be enough to keep some struggling farmers in business. Tell me a little bit more about this money that has been doled out. From my understanding here and reading your article, it says that this would push government payments to 36% of farm income. This is the highest share in nearly two decades. So this is like the government is subsidizing farmers so much because it's so tough out there. And you were talking about coronavirus and, and there's so many things there. We know the meatpacking plants and things like that. They became virus hotspots that ended up being a problem. So uh, it's just really a ton of different things that are mixing in. That's right. So the direct payments 
they would amount to 36% of farm income. That's the highest since 2001. And that's made up really of two large sections of payments. That is both for trade conflicts, that is to um, provide money for farmers who were hurt by the trade conflicts that we've seen in the past two years. And that's also aid to those farmers who have suffered as a result of coronavirus. And so it's really just a massive amount of money that the government is directing to farmers. And yet there's real questions about whether it is going to be enough. And so, um, you know, what we're seeing is that I think just about $7 billion of the $16 billion that the government promised to farmers to help them offset losses from coronavirus has been sent out thus far. So, you know, there's still more than half of those funds that have has yet to make it to farmers. And as you say, I mean, this is farmers across the board who are struggling as a result just of the most immediate problem, the pandemic. So when we when coronavirus first hit in the U.S., we saw produce farmers having to plow under thousands of acres of vegetables from tomatoes to lettuce. These are folks who no longer had any outlet for their products as restaurants and schools closed down, restaurants and schools and theme parks and all of the institutions that use a lot of the food that farmers grow no longer needed those supplies. And so demand for many of these products just plummeted. We also saw dairy farmers dumping milk and and there were other products as well that just there was all of a sudden demand dried up for these products. Just real problems across the board. Tell me a little bit about some of the farmers you spoke to for the story. One of them was a Wisconsin dairy farmer. His name was Art Stefan. He filed for bankruptcy just before the coronavirus pandemic hit. But, uh, you know, he's been just kind of been having a hard time for years as, as all this was going on in his family farm had been there since the 1860s and it's talking about how he felt like a failure because of this. You know, this is a conversation that I had with a number of different farmers. Many of these folks are stewards of their farms and have been, uh, you know, these farms have been in existence for generations and art, Stefan, he had to file for bankruptcy. He just had too much debt to continue to operate. So he filed for bankruptcy. And then actually, you know, he was continuing to try to farm. And he withdrew his bankruptcy filing after the pandemic hit because he was eligible for various types of this this government aid. And so he withdrew his filing so that he could qualify both for a PPP loan and then also for some of the direct payments that USDA has offered. And he got both the PPP loan and the government payments, um, and that money was spent within a matter of days, both to pay his employees and to keep his payroll going. And then also, um, you know, he spent some of it just to keep the lights on in his dairy barn. So he ended up having to file to refile for bankruptcy even after he received tens of thousands of dollars of aid. So bankruptcy in in this case was Mr. Seven's last resort. And he's hoping to be able to make it through and restructure his business and continue to farm. The USDA is evaluating the impact of COVID-19 on agriculture as it's happening. Congress is debating further financial support for farmers. So we're going to have to see what happens with that. But it's, I mean, as you've just been talking about, just tough times for U.S. farmers right now. Jesse Newman, agricultural reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment. 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is your Daily Dive.